Hi, welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Hi there. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. In each episode, we look at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so very, very excited to have you joining us today for our episode over 2000's American Psycho. So uh, I do want to just begin by apologizing for any uh, sound things that you hear on my end. There's currently construction going out, uh, going on outside my apartment that I cannot ask uh, them to just stop. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. So if there's any background noise, it's on me because there's construction. Yeah, the only way that you would uh, be able to make them stop is if you were Bateman and that wealthy. That's true. Then you could do whatever you wanted, including, you know, eating people. No consequences when you're rich. True story. We say (laughs) without ever knowing whether or not that's reality. Yeah, I mean, I just assume, yeah, I mean. I mean, in my mind's eye, that's what the rich version of me looks like, (laughs) right? (laughs) Is, Is without any sort of penalties for life. Um. Okay, so, which, you know, is what this entire film is about. Um, So if you look at the scholarship on American Psycho, you get a, you can find quite a bit because this is a cult classic and it's a cult classic Mm -hmm. based on a a book that also has a a very strong uh, following. And so I was telling Anthony prior to the start of our our recording that I I don't really have, like I do in some episodes, a very fixed singular uh, critical lens that I want to look at. But I do want to just kind of bring in some of the discussions that people are having about this film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the the people who has written about American Psycho is uh, Naomi Mandel, but she's actually focused a little bit more on the novel. And so this is from an edited collection called Novels of the Contemporary Extreme. And I want to start there, even though we very explicitly said that we're not going to be talking about Brett Easton Ellis's uh, novel because of the fact that a lot of the controversy about this film stems from the, uh, the, the fact that people feel so very conflicted about the book. The book is described by some as one of the most shockingly violent novels ever published. And of course, mm-hmm. Ellis will tell you, well, that's, that's not actually what he was trying to do. He wasn't necessarily trying to have this like super um, controversial book. He didn't even necessarily think it was going to be like the most ultimate horror text ever. And I think that, you know, Mary Heron, in, in needing to think about how she's going to adapt the film, had to think if this book has been labeled as the most shockingly violent novel ever, ever published, what do I do with that uh, in, in terms yeah. of the film? It's certainly a challenge, but also since film is such a visual medium, it's also like prevent, uh, it also presents very like clear and distinct advantages that a book may not have because in a book, like you can do a lot with words and words can be very, very descriptive, but picture tells a thousand words. And so a moving picture, that that's a lot of words. Yes. And so if people were scandalized by reading about some of the things that uh, Bateman does, uh, you know, do we, one of the questions of adaptation is, do we go there, right? Do we just say, well, let's just 
blow them out of the water with the images or do we, you know, manage to be more circumspect? And I, I think that we get both in the film, right? Because we have like the opening where we think it's, you know, drops of blood and then we realize it's raspberry sauce. We go from that to, you know, an actual just like apartment filled with death and destruction. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. As you do. As one does. The other texts that I, I just want to kind of give a shout out to are in an article by Deborah Knight and George McKnight in an edited collection called Dark Thoughts, Philosophic Reflections on Cinematic Horror. They talk about how we're supposed to morally evaluate this film and that one of the things that makes it challenging is, is that we don't really have anyone that we can cling to in this film as our sort of beacon of good. Um, we do have people like Willem Dafoe's character, but he's not, you know, he, he's not entirely that like outstanding uh, police officer who's the good guy that's, you know, shining because he's not in it enough. Um, and so I think what's interesting about the two McKnight's articles is, is this reminder that a lot of times in texts with monsters, we are given an example of who we're supposed to compare the monster to, to see them yeah. as a monster. Even in Frankenstein, um, you know, where, where you have to decide if Frankenstein's creature is actually truly a monster, the whole book is Frankenstein doctor saying, I have to tell you about how good I was so that you can understand how terrible this creature was. Um, and then the creature's like, I know what you just heard, but let me tell you some other thoughts. But we don't get yeah. that in American Psycho. It's we have icky, ickier, and ickiest, and and there's really no um, there's no way to evaluate our monster, which I think is a really intriguing way to make this film. Well, I think uh, by not including directly in the film itself a beacon of good, I think that you're then left to, as an audience member, try to yourself be that beacon of moral good you make or like whatever your moral good is so it's obviously an objective and for every sing single person it's going to be different like how you evaluate this character based on what your moral good is i would hope that most people out there their sense of moral good is like that a lot of the things that patrick bateman does are pretty bad like really bad um but uh you know i guess everyone would be different and so that is that could be a bit of a troubling thing by leaving it to just be it kind of up to the audience to evaluate it itself. You know, I think it's really interesting that you said that because I, I'm not sure I entirely agree, at least from my viewing experience. So I, I didn't turn to myself as the moral compass or as the, the sort of beacon of, of good because I felt like the film was saying that the only reason you're not doing these things is because this is not the life you're currently living. And so I, I think that's true. I, I think that the two can be true at the same time. So I guess like I didn't see myself as being better. I just didn't see myself as being in the story, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, which which I think fits with a lot of people's readings in that a lot of people will tell you that, you know, Bateman is not the, the real issue, right? That the real issue is the culture of the, the 80s uh, and 90s that this film is this the american culture of the 80s and 90s that this film is is depicting right that that like, is the real yeah. yeah it's satirizing this like toxic consumer heavy culture this business-minded world where all that matters is bottom lines and they they don't have any real problems so they have to make up their own problems like the comparing of the business cards what a problem to have i wish my biggest problem in life was that i didn't choose the correct font on my business card 
Do you know that is my I, I I'm sure it's because I love office supplies so much, but that is is my favorite scene. Um, it's a great scene. And it's the scene that I remember between viewings, so I don't always remember everything that happens in the film because I have to, I, I don't watch this film but probably every four or five years. Um uh-huh. but but that's the one scene that I remember and I think it's I don't know what it says about me, but that's the one scene I remember. But yeah, I think it's so important that, you know, for them that is for Bateman, right? That is just as much of a like life and death situation as is you know, pursuing a prostitute oh, yeah. down the stairs. The stakes of that scene are really felt and articulated by how the camera is framed, the music, and just how seriously everyone in that room is taking this exchange that's going on, this clear, like, power struggle yes. that's happening between these men. And I will say that moment was the one point where I did feel myself being put into the situation, right? Because, like, I was also evaluating what which card I personally thought was the best. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that for a scene where really nothing is happening, it is it might be one of the best examples of how to, like you said, use the cinematography and the acting and the, the music and mise-en-scene to, to create a ultimate stake situation um, yeah. in a boardroom. In a boardroom over nothing. It's not, we don't even... I, one of the things I think is really, really interesting about this movie is though it's set in this business office type of location, you don't see them do any work because yes. that's just not, that's not really what's important in, in, their, in their lives, I guess. Their, their, their work is just their way to secure money, which will allow them to have their lifestyle, which will allow them to be able to get away with doing whatever they want to do and go to these fancy clubs and get high all the time and get be constantly drunk, have these prostitutes come in and film your sex lives and put it out there and just do you get to do all this stuff and that's why you do the work and that's why it's there and i think it's because of something you said earlier and that is is that this is a film about consumption not production right so the last article i want to briefly mention is by christina lee and it's in the book uh murders and acquisitions which of course is you know uh direct quote from the film and uh she begins her article which is about serial consumption in american psycho by giving a quote from jeffrey dahmer who uh said my consuming lust was to experience their bodies i viewed them as objects as strangers and so that's from uh one of the many interviews that was done um after dahmer was convicted uh and of course he murdered 17 people between 1978 and 1991 and she starts there and then later she says Bateman would be proud uh, for use of that quote i mean you know like it's it's eerie how how appropriate that quote is right to have that be an actual quote from a serial killer um yeah and and she says later right in american psycho as everything has a price everything can therefore be acquired expended and discarded the narrative evokes all possible meanings of the word consume to purchase or possess to eat and to destroy all articulate a confused consumerism that has run out of control and exceeded all boundaries and and to go back to what you said i think one of the really interesting things is is we do get to see that that there is absolutely no production happening um on the part of these it's the worst parts of capitalism is that like that you only exist to to consume that's the only thing that's important it's just the continued consumption to fuel and just bolster this economy and we see even with um defoe's character right like the one person who's 
who should be doing something, right? Because he's investigating the case. Nothing ever comes of it. Um, So that we see that in this society, which is certainly satirical, but also an experience that many people may have had in the 80s and 90s, especially. It's a a slightly heightened version of reality. Yes, exactly. And and so what are we supposed to do with this reminder that, like you said, um, in this capitalistic society, it doesn't matter if you produce so long as you are capable of, of consuming. Um, I think that this film is very similar to another film that came out around a similar time, Fight Club, mm-hmm. in the sense that they're both uh, critiquing this similar culture um, and the similar toxic environment and the similar, like, mm-hmm. this, like, toxic masculinity and this, these really fragile, delicate concepts like that. But I think where this film ultimately succeeds for me, where Fight Club, I think, comes off as more of a kind of a sick twisted affirmation of that toxic masculinity and it you it ultimately glorifies that character i think that you can't come away from american psycho and say yeah i think that the camera and the cinematography and the script were really glorifying patrick bateman i think that the, and i think that part of that is because it it's directed by a woman, whereas Fight Club was not, and there's still some kind of creepy male gazy things that slip in there, and some stuff, some subliminal things that are happening. Whereas with Mary Heron, that is not in there at all. This is not glamorizing anything. It may be shot beautifully, mm-hmm. but it isn't always intended to disturb you and and be as alienating as possible. Yes, I think that's a fantastic point. I think about the the scene where he's peeling off his face mask right and it and like you said uh you know it's it's beautifully shot and christian bale is depicted very beautifully in that film um but there's something so profoundly disturbing that that you're not wanting to be him uh and i think about the fact that we talk we make jokes still to this day about like the first rule of fight club is you know you don't talk about fight club well we make comments about that indicating that we're part of a fight club right even though none of us are but we we use that phrase none of us go the first rule of being a serial killer is you know like there's not that same um sort of acceptance like you said of 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 what is or not acceptable you want to be in the fight club yeah you do that's the implication of that line and like that of that reference is that you're a part of this club and that this idea of this closed-minded group of this uh that is there to support each other is something that you want and that's if you think about what you're really saying when you say when you quote that line casually, it's a uh, it's a bit weird. Yeah. It's a bit weird that we've all uh, suddenly gotten on board with being in this dude bro toxic masculinity alt right hate group. Yeah. And and I want to go back to to your statement about this being a film um, directed by a woman because I mm-hmm. think I find that this conversation comes up a lot. Not not just, but but with American Psycho, but but just kind of in general of like, can one um, identify, if you were just presented with a film, could you identify whether or not it was by a male or female director? And like, I've been asked this question before. Um, and the answer is, is, you know, right? Like, yes and no, kind of not really, but a little bit, right? Um, 
And yeah. and I think it goes back more to I don't think you can say, well, this was a film about, you know, delightfully soft kittens. Therefore, it must have been done by a woman because we have things like American Psycho and the Hurt Locker and things and things like that. But I think you can see oftentimes less use of things that we have been taught are just, quote, normal. Like you said, the male gaze um, where, you know, one of the things that that bait that is done with Bateman's character in a way that I'm not sure would have happened with a male director is that his entire body um, is ours for consumption. Uh, yeah, I you you were talking about this earlier when he, about with the face mask of like why you you you're seeing that sequence and you don't want to be them. And I had a thought. It's like he's presented almost as this like statuesque, like too like I'm he's like very much like a Greek statue which Greek statues are kind of alienating in when you just look at them because you're they're representing this like peak of humanity that is on a pretty much unattainable just by regular standards they're just off color enough that you they're not exactly you and they're just it's just not human enough to be a little creepy where you're like it's just a little too defined it's just a little too smooth a little too polished that you're like that's not, I don't recognize that as me. It's alienating. And that is exactly how Patrick Bateman is framed in this movie every time you see him. He's just a little too polished, a little too put together. And you, so you're like, I don't know. I don't, he's not like us. He's not us. Yeah. And, and there, so, so on the one hand, I, I think, right, you're absolutely correct that we have him being depicted. So if we go back to like the difference between Greek versus Roman art, right? It is the fact that, that the Greek art was this ideal that was celebrated because it couldn't actually be replicated in real life. Um, and so he feels artificial and we actually see that he is artificial inside and outside, right? That his like that, that whole discussion about his regiment care or his care regiment, um, you know, is, is letting us know that everything that we're seeing has been carefully crafted. Um, but at the same time, there we're we're kind of having this this gaze of him that is is not the traditional way that um, the camera has often depicted male characters, right? So uh, if we go to the the male gaze concept is not new, right? Um, arguably, any culture that's been patriarchal has probably had. Um, somewhat of a male gaze in their artwork. But Laura Mulvey really coined that term at, in film criticism to talk about uh, the psychology of scopophilia, right? The pleasure of looking. And there's this weird way in which American Psycho manages to both repel us. Uh, we don't want to look because he's he's so alien. But at the same time, he's being depicted as very beautiful. There's a lot of shots of him that are full body shots that feel very voyeuristic right like like but don't you want to look at him and and again you know some of that's because yeah. christian bale is objectively a very beautiful person but the film and the lens of the film makes him um somebody that you want to both appreciate consuming but also you're a bit repulsed by your consumption yeah kind of like capitalism you and like the this kind of the system that he himself finds himself to be just another cog in, it's this like all you he's like all you exist to do is consume, and so this film takes that to the next 
to the next level. He's like, all you can do is consume. Well, what happens when you're so rich that you can easily consume things beyond everyone else's wildest dreams? Well, the next natural step in this, oh, I can't curse on this. Uh, the next uh, the next natural step in this uh, effed up cycle uh, is to just keep going, consuming more and more grander and grander, more intense things, which is exactly what we see his character do throughout the film. But I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned this phrase, the, you know, cog in the machine, because, of course, one of the running jokes that reaches its sort of zenith there at the end is the fact that he's constantly being mistaken for someone else, right? Mm -hmm. And and so we see that that he really is, uh, you know, just as, as viable of a candidate for consumption as is anyone else. And so I want to go back to what you said at the very beginning, right, that, like, perhaps the moral beacon is us, um, or that's the only moral beacon we can find. But perhaps because we are consuming him this entire film ourselves, right, uh, we realize that uh, we're just as monstrous um, and that, that, that this whole experience and perhaps like just watching films, right, um, is, is itself also a sort of monstrous consumption. And perhaps maybe even then, if we want to take this a step farther, then perhaps the, the, monst the true monster in it is not any individual, it's not any one person. It's rather a monstrous society, a monstrous system, a monstrous uh, way of being. Yes. And you are you are left to grapple with the fact that how are you watching this movie? You probably had to pay for it, didn't you? Oh, so you're just consuming. You're watching this cri criticism of consumption, of mass consumption, of just being one of m hundreds of millions, of thousands, of however many, however many people. And you're just one of those in watching this film. And not only are you paying for the film, right, but the actual, like, the process of film going, um, you know, if you think about it, if you think about the fact that when we watch a film, we are allowed to intrude upon the private lives of admittedly fictional characters, but we're like, we're in their home, we're in their bathroom, we're in their bedroom, right? Mm -hmm. We're consuming them. Um, and yeah. And that's just what you do, right? Like you just, you, you, we should be able to experience the pleasure of looking. And I think that this film reminds us that there, there's something a little creepy about, about being a film viewer. And I think that that is another, you mentioned a little earlier that it was voyeuristic in a lot of the shots. And usually voyeurism is when it's strongly used in film, particularly horror films, voyeurism is usually not a thing that produces comfort in an audience member. Because when you use voyeuristic camera techniques, you're breaking the suspension of disbelief and you're asking the audience to put themselves even either, either you're either doing one of two things. You're either taking them really, really far, in, far, far in and being like, look, you are a part of this now. Um, or it's like, making you realize, oh, wait, I'm watching a film. Mm -hmm. And so it can either serve to alienate or put you really in inside the film and what is going on. And the fun thing about this film and why I think it's so good is you don't want either of those options. Yes. You don't want either of those options with these characters and these situations that you're being presented with. Because if you go along with it, then you are complacent. Your voyeurism and your viewing is complacency and acceptance and means that you are a part of this. Or, but your alienation is not good either because alienation and othering 
it leads to groupthink and just puts you right back in the same situation yeah. again. Bateman says that he feels alienated and disconnected, right? That's why he's uh-huh. able to to comfortably do the things he does. So either you get to be, uh, you know, a cog in the machine or Bateman, which you then realize is a cog in the machine, it's right? Another cog yeah. in, a, in, a, in a larger machine because you yes. can't escape the system. And and I think you you said and that's why you know this film works so well and I think I think that's the truth is that this is a film that is gonna that deserves to to still be talked about that that has an incredible cult following because mm-hmm. of the fact that I can think of very few other films that or texts period that manage to to truly show you the, a spectrum. And to make you not want to experience either end, but to realize you are experiencing them anyway. Mm-hmm. Whether you like it or not, both of these are true at the same time, and neither of these things uh, are good. And when you and when you apply it to your own life, which I think the film does kind of force you to do, um, you're like, oh, geez, I, if you re- I'm really doing this deep dive and being completely honest with myself. I am similar in a similar place as patrick bateman i just don't have the same means and ability to maybe do this and that's not all and like then you're like would i do it and then you tell yourself of course you wouldn't right but i'm sure that people in in all of these other places where terrible things have happened never thought they would do it either and so it forces you to deal with really uncomfortable questions about yourself and like your reality and we see this the spectrum right of, of things that i think we've all been guilty of to the extreme of things that hopefully anyone listening to this podcast is not guilty of, right? So, like, all of us have engaged in conversation with strangers that is frivolous and not entirely truthful. Even if it's just something like, how are you? Fine. Right? Are mm-hmm. you actually fine? Probably not, right? And so maybe you're not lying to, you know, a model about how... uh you know, because you're trying to lure her up to your apartment to kill her, right? Maybe you're not doing that. Um, but if you interact with some strangers at a club, you're probably not being entirely truthful because why should you? They're not a real people to you. So mm-hmm. all of us have done something like that or we've had petty work dynamics or, uh, you know, we talk smack about uh, a colleague or um, we are not always as thankful to our office administrators as we should be, right? Like there's something like that. And and so we we have to see ask ourselves, you know, if, if Bateman does all the things he does because he can get away with it, and we do the minor things he does, right? If we had mm-hmm. those opportunities, where would we draw the line? Um, yeah, and I think that it's, this film also does similar ana- like analysis of of capitalism and like this re- inherent greed. There's been a lot of recent studies that have come out about how. Uh, earning money and cash can be just as addictive as any horrible drug. It can be just as addictive as heroin, Mm -hmm. crack, all of these drugs like alcohol um, can be just as addictive as that. And because once you get this pleasure that's coming in, money is a type of pleasure. It gives you access to things. It allows you to do more. It can propel you to a higher social status. It can be addicting. And thus why we have these really rich, for the large part, they are men um, who have an already overwhelming amount of money, but just still seem to want more and more and keep finding new ways to exploit loopholes to 
get more money. And that's what you see with Patrick and the people in his circle. And that's an uncomfortable thing. And I think viewing this film today, it is a little harder to to say, but this is this isn't real. When we have people like Weinstein uh, and and, you know, and we have these documentaries coming out and these tell alls um, and Mm -hmm. and even things like, you know, all the news that's happening right now about um, Ellen DeGeneres and like whether or not her work um, place is a toxic environment. But she's such a lovely person. Right. I mean, we've reached a point where we are realizing that maybe not everyone has has killed a whole bunch of women in an empty apartment but that again the more money you have the more money you're going to want in part because the more you can do whatever you want which when you're on something you don't feel the need to to be circumspect right you can just do whatever you want because you don't see consequences that's why you're not allowed to drink and drive right you don't see consequences when you're drunk that you would otherwise um so how would you see consequences when you're addicted to money and i mean you see this this is perpetuated and even even further perpetuated today i mean sitting in the current white house is the is president uh, donald trump who famously said that when you're rich you can do whatever you want they let you do whatever you want referring to taking advantage of women and that is a message that apparently resonated with a great deal of the country because it was despite him coming out and not being a thing that is publicly known and there's video evidence of him saying it people don't really seem to care so deep, maybe deep down we all we already and all have always known that this is what the system is and this is what the system allows but we're we're kind of part of it and we're being complacent in this monster system by not doing anything about it electing those people to the highest off, office in the land and you know, I haven't read Ellis's novel, but uh, yeah, just for the record, neither have I. But I cannot help but feel, knowing that you know, having read a significant amount about how, how much was adapted, right, and and how truthful the spirit was to the adaptation, I can't mm-hmm. help but feel that this big anxiety about it being, you know, the most shockingly violent text ever, right, um, has very little to do with the actual violence and more to do with, as you said, the fact that that in this, this story, we're reminded that we don't actually in the real world treat these people as monsters, right? This is yeah. not the, uh, you know, Marquis de Sade where we're like, well, obviously he's gross and disgusting. You know, this is not Silence of the Lambs where we're like, well, of course he's a notorious serial killer. You know, Chris, uh, Christian Bale as Bateman, um, as well as Bateman the character, are depicted as as not... They're, they're doing monstrous things, but we're reminded that no one sees them as monsters, mm-hmm. even when they wholeheartedly confess. Exactly. Then I think that's where we, this leads us to a good discussion of the, the end of the film, which is a little bit... Uh, some critics have uh, criticized it for getting a little too abstract and just being out there. But I, I don't know if I 100% agree with those criti- with those criticisms of it. Um, I don't. I, I don't think I do um, because of what you said earlier, and that is is that this film is giving us. If we go back to my my the thing I have to talk about every time, the source of horror, right? This film is giving right, us. Right. A, it's important. It's it important. is important. 
as we've seen time and time again throughout our discussion of various horror texts, the horror texts that are usually most effective are usually the ones that have the most clear, direct, and articulated source of horror. And I think sometimes in films when I felt like they've gone off the rails or they went somewhere that felt too abstract or unexpected, um, it's because they either the film kind of deviated from the source of horror or mm. it, it became grab bag e there at the end. But yeah. in um, American Psycho, the source of horror is the spectrum, right? It's not one extreme or the other. It is the spectrum and the fact that we find ourselves toggling back and forth uncomfortably from one into the other. And I think mm. the only way to, to carry that forward is to have an ending of, a, of this film be the way it is, where it is a little bit fractured um, and it gets a little ridiculous. Uh, you know, I think one of my favorite moments is when he shoots the the cop car and it blows up and then he looks at it like, what yeah. is happening? Like, right? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, we need that, right? We need it to get over the top because we need it to be quickly oscillating back and forth between either end of the spectrum, right? Um, is it disgusting to be consumed or to be the consumer? Yes. Uh, we yeah. need it back and forth and we need it to, to build up in speed until the film ends. Um, I, so I don't have a problem with it because I don't think it could have ended any other way and maintained that source of horror. And I think it, the, the way it does end is actually is, is perfect for the source of horror and drives it home. Like what you were saying, because we don't a hundred percent know what has ha happened. He, he talks to his lawyer at the end and he's confessed. He totally confesses to all these things, but the lawyer doesn't seem to know what he's talking about. The guy who he killed is still alive. He maybe. Says, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. He says that. He says that he's he's still alive. Um, and I guess we're supposed to believe him. Why, though? Which the film kind of, like, asks you to ask yourself that. Like, why should you just believe this lawyer? Why? why? Yeah. <laughs> what reason? So when you read about the film, when you read people praising or criticizing it, it's interesting the number that are the number of um, people that are really obsessed with being able to identify the number of people that Bateman for sure killed versus the yeah. number that are, are made up. Right. Because either you believe he killed everyone, um, he killed no one or he, he killed like and there's like a precise number. Right. Like this person, this person, but not that person, but this person. I just would like to, I think that that is, that reveals a larger problem within the system and within like individual mindset that you're trying to, you need to know exactly how many people he killed. So you can decide how bad of a person he yes. is. It's like, I can rationalize this because we've been taught in like this capitalist society that everyone has monetary value. Everyone has a certain amount of worth and like, well, if he only killed this many, this many, then oh, he's bad for sure. But like, I guess he's bad enough to he can still work on wall street though like he's not that he's not bad enough to lose his job yes. or like that i should really hate him like not a great bloke but whatever which is that's wild what no yes <laughs> yeah we've been taught that there are thresholds of, ex of what is or is not acceptable and and when you and the film doesn't answer it as much as like i'm sure these theories on the internet these people really have lots of evidence and i'm sure that i'm sure that they can make a compelling argument i think that the ending and why doesn't ultimately matter because whether he did or he didn't doesn't matter he could have and he could have gotten away with it because of his place and how much money he had my partner who has has an interpretation of the ending that very much aligns with that and that is is that uh she argued that jared leto's character 
um, was murdered. But what the ending is actually showing us is that his family has enough money to make it disappear. Right. So that even one's death becomes inconsequential if you have enough money to be able to make that be the case. And, and yeah, because his death would really could really if it's found out that these Wall Street people and it becomes really public information that they kill people and they're able to do this and get away with it. What could that possibly do to the system? Exactly. Anything that could challenge the system, it can just be made to go away. Because the most important thing is keeping this system, no matter how terrible it is. And so the ambiguous ending works because the message, right, that source of horror is, is there ever going to be an answer that's not gross, right? Is there, in this system, is there ever going to be a version that is not broken and and corrupt? Um, and it really doesn't matter again if you're the if you're the one enjoying the viewing and the consuming, or if you're the one being consumed. Um, either way, yeah. you're in a place that's not not an acceptable place. And the fact that it is very clearly identified as being in an America that we consider to be a financial heyday, right, um, is should not be lost on on the viewers. Mm-mm. What I have found very interesting about our conversation and this is going to be a strange place I realized in the conversation by talking about what we didn't talk about but I want to end by just saying that one of the things we didn't even talk about were uh, the female characters uh, which you know are to varying degrees just objects but um, you know we have two incredible actresses in this film uh, Reese Witherspoon and Chloe Savini who have really you know gone on to do some some works later where they they play very powerful women um Mm -hmm. and i think it's interesting that we can have a film that gives us actually compared to any other character fairly developed characters right uh as much as any character is developed and yet um just like anyone in this film no one really matters uh and so you know i know that this film gets criticized a lot for being, I think, very sexist. And it's hard not to feel that way when you have, you know, the amount of sex scenes and like literal eating of female flesh as this film does. Right. But I'm not sure that a film can be sexist when it's really just, what is the, what is the word? Um, misanthropic. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if a film can be, can really be criticizing or, or belittling a sex when it's really just saying we're all gross. Um, and that's that's what makes this film so good, in my opinion. I think that there is a difference from portraying a sexist character and a patriarchal society, which both of those ha- are are at play in this film, and being a film that is sexist. Exactly. I think I think that is a that is, there is a distinction there. Like, uh, without a doubt, uh, Patrick Bateman is sexist and. This whole workplace is clearly built on patriarchal values. Like you don't see any women in leadership roles. It's, it's, that is clear. That is undeniable fact. However, I don't think you're supposed to think it's a good thing. The film certainly doesn't do anything to, to make you think it's a good thing. And so I, I don't, I think it would be kind of, I don't know. It's you're missing the point. If you are like this film, doesn't do justice to its female characters like could it really in in like with the characters that it has in the system that is that is present you're asking it to do something that 
would be untrue to the world that it's creating. I, I think that at the end of the day, this film forces us to ask, in a world where everyone is monsters, what are we, what are we supposed to call them? And the answer is, is America. But, but, but like, what do we call... Uh, Ameri- we are Americans. It's like that line from us. Exactly. Uh, we are going to shift gears for our next episode and talk about another film that's a cult classic, but if, for very different reasons. And that film is? Yeah, it's 1981's The Evil Dead, uh, written and directed by Sam Raimi. So we are very excited to do this, and we're going to go through all of our Evil Dead films. Not all at once, but we're going to make our way through all of it. Uh, So be excited. And in the meantime, please be sure to Uh, go ahead and leave us a a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts from. And be sure to follow our social media, which is in our description. And tell your friends about us. Share us. Get us out there. We'd love to have more people to talk about horror with. Thank you very much.